Welcome to this special edition of From the Proscenium, the podcast about filmmaking and movie watching. Today's interview, we are talking to Peter Tompkins, the writer, producer, director, and star of the documentary The Artist, a documentary. And we have associate producer Rusty Harden, who is an artist and producer of the movie as well. Enjoy this conversation about making documentary movies and being an artist. So Peter, why don't you give us the title of your movie and a, and a recap of what it's about and why you made it. Oh, sure. Um, well, the movie is called The Artist, a Documentary. And it's basically a film that discusses what it's like to be an artist, how hard it is to make a living at being an artist. And it kind of asks the question, is it ever too late to become one, to become an artist? And how did you end up deciding to make this movie? Oh, man, you know, I've been involved in the arts for most of my life. And many years ago, I um, started to try to sell my photography as a as a business. And I was doing okay, but I was never bringing in the kind of money that would pay all the bills. Like, if, as I say in the movie, if my wife lost her job, you know, we'd be begging for change in the street if we had to rely off of how much money I made from my photography and my music. And... um I kept meeting all these artists who are musicians and photographers and they're, they're just claiming to be raking in the cash, just rolling in dough from selling, you know, selling canvases and their music and music gigs. And they're just having a great time. I'm like, you're kidding. And like, I'm hardly making anything. And somehow you guys are just making a fortune at this. I'm like, oh yeah. It's just a great time. I'm just selling all kinds of stuff online. And I said, one day I'm going to research this and find out what the truth is. I'm going to, make a movie. I thought to myself, a documentary and follow some artists around and find out what the real, the real scoop is on, on most people as, as artists, if everybody's really rolling in dough, you know, paying, paying for the rent and the utilities and the kids and everything else. So I just kind of got the idea when I started trying to sell my stuff, going to art fairs, meeting other artists. And then I couldn't tell if they were really selling a lot of of their work or putting on just putting on a brave face to make it sound good you know i that's kind of where i got the idea and your, your movie focuses on artists in the dayton ohio area how'd you end up picking dayton as your target for this well back in the mid-1980s i attended ohio university and studied graphic design and not web design graphic design and illustration and i joined a fraternity theta chi fraternity where I met my friend Logan Rogers and Logan and I were both graphic design and illustration majors. And we just kind of hit it off. We've stayed in touch all these years and I've always respected and admired his work. And we both have a really bizarre, you know, sense of humor. We've always gotten along. And he was the first person I thought of when I uh, wanted to make this film and I called him up and he lives in the Dayton area. He's from tip city, which is just uh, North of Dayton. And I called him up and said, hey, do you want to be in my film? And he said, sure. Yeah, he, without hesitation, he just jumped at the chance to be in it. And it just kind of went from there. And uh, Logan introduced me to Rusty. And Rusty introduced me to everybody else that's in the film. And they all just so happened to be in the Dayton community. So I just said, yeah, I'll stay in Dayton. I just 
tapped into the energy down there. It's just an awesome art community. You were talking a little bit um, in our pre-recording about the, the art scene in Dayton. Uh, mm -hmm. And you said you live in Cleveland. Yeah. And you said there's a, a difference between the, the community of artists in Cleveland and in Dayton. What type of spirit did you find in Dayton? I found a, a really welcoming spirit, a very, um, you know, it seemed like everybody was like a brotherhood or a sisterhood of artists. They all seemed to be getting along, kind of having the attitude like we're all in this boat together, moving as one in one direction. I didn't get a lot of air of, um, I know what the word is. I didn't get a lot of the attitude like I'm an artist. A lot of people who are artists are like, I'm an artist, you know, like they're in a different plane or something. Everybody seemed very down to earth, friendly, um, warm and inviting. I just I couldn't can't see enough about the, the warm, friendly people I met in Dayton. Most of the artists I think you interviewed were part of the Front Street building um, collect, I don't know if it's collective, but it's a, a big building. They've sectioned it into individual studios. And you also talked to the owners. Are they the owners or are they are they just the managers of Front Street? They're the owners, aren't they, Rusty? Uh, Richard and Carol and Dean, they're the property managers. Oh, the they, owners okay. um, are out of Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought they bought it from the guy in Chicago, but okay. And you interviewed them as part of the movie. I'm to say this. Are they the ones that created the community? Uh, is it, are they the spirit of Front Street? Or do they kind of evolve naturally? I, I think, Rusty, you can probably answer that, but I think they, they kind of created it, right? Well, actually, it's been an art community since um, the mid-60s. Okay. It's gone through a lot of, a lot of um, personalities and transformations and so on. But um, a, lot of, a lot of the artists, or some of the artists that are there now actually have been there since the uh, mid to late 80s. But it, you know, and it just continued to um, go through them things. So the folks in Chicago, as Richard and Carol explained, is they, um, they were sent to kind of do an assessment. And they were kind of looking at, you know, what should it be? And I don't know if they were even entirely sure they were going to continue um, it being the art community that it is. But but Richard and Carol explained that when they came to look it up, look at it for the for the owners to do the assessment, Richard was so excited and pleased with what he found there. I think they called it a fixer upper. This this can be a fixer upper. Yeah. And so they um, they really brought about a lot of really positive changes. I think um, the area was a lot of um, everybody was kind of in their own universe there, and not so much the colony or community that it is today and I would say that Richard and Carol have been incredibly instrumental in making it what it is today because they built on the sense of community you know the the times I've been there is just I usually go there uh, they did the first Fridays in Dayton uh, where the studios are open and everyone hangs out and it's just it's just neat walking around because the studios are open you can talk to folks um, it seems like there's a broad audience of people that show up there which goes back to with the theme of your movie is mm -hmm. it seems like you're also trying to break a lot of stereotypes of what artists are for people who are outside the artist community. Mm -hmm. um, was that, was that a goal when you went in there or did that just kind of happen as the, the movie happened? You know, I think it just kind of happened as the movie went along, but 
honestly, uh, it, it kind of it was kind of part of it because I was trying to bridge a gap between who we all are as artists and what and and the stereotypical preconceived vision in people's minds and the general public of who we are. Because I think a lot of a lot of people I run into, you know, you hear them say, "Oh, why don't they get a real job? Those crazy artists with the purple hair and all that stuff." But you know, you see the you see the artists in the art community. Some of them dress eccentrically and stuff, but regardless of how somebody dresses, I wanted to get across the message that they're hardworking people, that they're not just running through tall fields of grass chasing butterflies, talking about peace and love, that they're, they're business people that have to learn marketing, that they're, they're actual hardworking, talented people that may look at the world differently. But I was trying to bridge that gap between the general public and us as a community of artists. I thought you did a wonderful job of letting people who are not in the arts understand what it is to have the job of an artist. It's not, we don't like, like you cover, we're not sitting in a studio um, throwing paint on walls and going home and having dinner and saying, oh, you know, I had a good day. Yeah. Um, I've, I've told a lot of people that I, that I work with, it's like being an artist is seven full-time jobs. Oh yeah. And I like how in, in the movie, um, I forget the lady's name that does fairy god. Was it fairy godmother? Yeah, Leanne. Yeah, and now she actually breaks into the numbers. She's like, I, you yeah. know, I have to make this much money every month just to cover my payroll and yeah. my bills. Yeah, she was excellent. Yeah, and I don't think people realize outside the arts that this is a job. Oh yeah. Well, I think it's funny because I struck gold with Leanne because she did go into those numbers. Because other people, I kept trying to get them to say something about their finances. <laughs> like, tell me it sucks. Tell me how hard it is. And, and people would kind of tap dance around it. But she came out and just said, yeah, I've got this much money I've got to bring in to stay afloat. And I was just like, yes, I got finally got somebody to say it on camera. Because I think it's important that the general public knows. I mean, you can't go into detail on how much every canvas costs and the paint and or whatever your medium happens to be, but it's you have so many different, so many different aspects of being an artist: the marketing and the advertising and the budgeting. And and most of us artists don't like doing any of that. It's it's, it's torture for me to try to market myself. I, I despise doing it, but you've got to do it. It's it's just something if you want to sell anything on the internet, especially or or at an art fair, you have to present yourself in a professional, polished way, or the general public's not going to buy it in most cases. Right, so you have to kind of be a somewhat polished business person. So, were you a a good business person walking into this movie, or did you have to learn some new skills making making the movie? Well, yes and no. I mean, prior to making the movie, I had I'm I'm a solo musician, and I play guitar at you know coffee shops and bars and. Uh, private parties and things. So I, I would have to figure out a way to market myself. So I knew all about marketing and tag words and hashtagging and all that stuff for the internet and coming I, for years, I've come up with flyers and business cards, but I learned a lot in a movie. You know, the, the movie business is a whole different medium. It's entirely different. And I think the one thing I learned is to not take it all on myself. I just it just about drove me crazy to be the editor, the sound person. I had a cameraman, I had a cinematographer, but he he moved on to a different project. So I ended up having to do all the camera work myself. I did like the whole thing myself and I was just about losing my mind after <laughs> 
six, six days straight, 10 hours a day of working on it. So I think I learned, you've got to, I learned about budgeting. I've got to come up with a, a better budget so I can afford to hire all these people to do the work, even for a small, small documentary. Or even enlisting folks, um, friends, friends and family who you can barter with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got, I mean, I hired Rusty and she's been a blessing. She um, took over all the getting um, releases signed and talking to people, get them to come into the movie. She did all the stuff that I just, just, I can't stand. And when she first met me, I, I can be kind of in your face about stuff. Like, are you going to sign this waiver? You're going to sign the waiver? You're going to sign the waiver? And, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, because I just want to get it done and get it out of the way. But she kind of was, is, she's far more diplomatic uh, than I was. And she got people to be in the movie. And I need, I need like five more Rusties to do my next documentary. Because she <laughs> just really was a, a driving force behind this. So you two had not met before you started making the movie? No. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Wow. I figured, by the way, you guys were working so well together during the, in the movie that you had, you had known each other before you started filming. Oh, no. No, Logan actually introduced me to Rusty. Logan Rogers, the, the first or the, uh, the second artist in the film. I spent a lot of time in Troy, Ohio, which is just, it's just north of Tip City. Mm-hmm. And... I've never even met Logan or heard of his work. And oh, seeing, really? him, yeah, seeing his work in the painting, it's like, in, in the movie, it's like, that's, that's amazing work. And he's been doing it for, for years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the, how many artists are out there who are making amazing work and don't get, you know, and don't get that recognition of, you know, the commissions and doing the, the murals in the post office and all that good stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's so many out there that you you would never even know existed. So, do you think your your movie is a champion for those folks in some sort to to open up people's eyes as to there are artists out there everywhere that you are making amazing work and you just don't you don't know them yet? No, I never thought of it like that. I I think it might be more of a champion for the person who may have given up on their dream of being an artist. And came back and thinks they think they had to do it when they were young or had to go to college to do it. Um, but I think I think it, there's a nice cross section of artists in the film that would appeal to you know the person out there that may not be discovered yet. But also I wanted to tap into those people who gave up on it, like I gave up on it one time and came back to it. But I was much older, and hopefully I, w- I think of myself being a little bit wiser when I was in my what was I in my forties when I finally came back to this? So yeah, I, th- I think it kind of appeals to, to the, to the undiscovered or the person that's kind of out there in the, the outer fringes of artistry that nobody knows of maybe to speak to them. Stepping back a little bit in the conversation you're talking about that Rusty was getting the, the, uh, all the things signed. I do like in the movie, there's also some, insight into making the film when you're driving around with Logan and he's put his, he put his baseball hat on <laughs> and he could say the name of the school, but he couldn't, you couldn't show the logo. And I thought that was a, a nice little insight into filmmaking is especially with documentaries, what you can or can't do or include <laughs> in a movie. Yeah. Were those things you had to learn on the, along the road or how did you, how did you well, learn some all of those? It I already knew 
because just of being a photographer, um, you have to get releases for, you know, if you take pic pictures of people under the age of 18, you'd have to get a parental release and you have to make sure things that are behind somebody in, in a public shoot. If it's going to get published, you can't have the Coca-Cola sign in there or Coca-Cola could, you know, if it gets to be a real famous photograph, Coca-Cola could swoop in and say, cease and desist. You got to remove this photograph from circulation, stuff like that. So right. I knew some of it, but I have, I hired an attorney who went through the film. She saw it when it was done and she said, you need to take this out, take this out, take this out, take this out. So I spent <laughs> weeks going in Premiere Pro blurring beer, beer signs and cigarette paintings and all this stuff out. So some of it I learned on the fly. And because in today's age, they'll sue you for just about anything. And so she didn't think the high university thing was, I don't, I don't know. I went, we, Logan and I both went to OU. Hopefully they don't see and go, let's go sue that guy. But I, I don't know. I think I, I, it's neither negative or positive, but they in no way endorsed the film. So they may say, right. hey, we didn't endorse that. And they may come back and attack me or something. But yeah, some of it I learned on the fly. Do you get a little more, a little more, a little more leeway in making a documentary as opposed to a fictional piece in terms of logos or what you can say or can't say? Uh, you mean between the two different types of films? Yeah, if, in documentaries, can you, because you are telling an editorial, can you get away with a little bit more? Yeah, there, there's certain there's a gray area there with um, what's it called? Um, not public domain. What's it called, fair, Rusty? Fair, fair use. Fair, fair use. use. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a gray area though, but I didn't want to take any chances. Like there's certain things I took out that I didn't know if I really had to take out. But I think I think in a commercial, in a um, in a fiction piece, a regular uh, fictional movie, I don't think you can have product placement in there unless the company gives the authority. Like you can't have Coke. A Coke can in a in a feature film that's fiction, unless the your spot they're they're a sponsor of the film, or you get their legal um, approval. Right, I, I, there might be a little more leeway in a documentary if you're in a you know in a restaurant having a Coke or something like that, but I'm not quite certain. So Rusty, you get mm -hmm. when you got brought in to to help Peter with the movie. How much of this stuff did you know, or how much did you have to go and research like releases and fair use and all that good stuff? Well, Peter really had most of that all lined up. He had all, he had all the releases. We had some discussions about maybe the fair use only um, not, you know, just, just kind of bouncing it off. And I think one of the things that probably the, the, the vein that took in our conversation was okay, this probably falls in fair use because um, fair, fair use, when, when we say that, there's certain guidelines that, that if you're using something for educational purposes or um, just taking out a little bit for a group, you know, for a group situation and stuff, you know, you can use it. But I think the vein of the conversation was that um, what happens if we leave it in there and then they challenge it and then here they come back on Peter and is the challenge worth it? So I think that was an interesting, um, because, you know, initially I'm just like, it's fair use, but in the course of sorting out how much trouble do you want down the, down the road or how, what issues do you want to deal with? And if somebody comes back, because sometimes you may have had a right to do it under fair use, but you know, what are you going to have to do go through to keep it? 
So there's so many decisions and processes and stuff about those kind of things that, um, as a, that I watched Peter do as a filmmaker, you know, kind of agonize over it because some of it would have been really phenomenal to have, but what happens if, and do we, you know, will he have to, you know, what happens to the whole film if, if it, if it comes back, comes down to it and is it worth the fight? So, so, so for me, the, um, it was, it wasn't necessarily always, um, understanding what we could or couldn't do, but is it, is it worth doing, you know, under, under the circumstances, because, you know, he carries a lot of, he carries a lot of responsibility for what's said and what's shown and what's done. And also perhaps even a liability. So he was pretty responsible and pretty considerate about, about it. And I initially was thinking of trying to get this film onto PBS. So I thought if I was going to get this on a, on a big market or a, a big sponsor like that to show the film, I had to have all my I's dotted and my T's crossed because they would have come back and probably had their legal department look at it and said, well, you can't have this in here, this and that and the other. And so I tried to nip that in the bud ahead of time to save myself a lot of work down the road. So that was your plan when you were, when you're, you're making this is you wanted to have a, a, a different, uh, I, I, I'm leading into how movies are distributed now versus they were a year or so ago. So you went in hoping to get it into like a PBS type of market. That was your intent. Originally, I thought it would have been nice to have it on PBS, but that was just kind of a, a pipe dream. I guess, because I didn't really research PBS too much and find out what their process was. I, uh, cause I had watched a lot of uh, Ken Burns documentaries and, you know, he's, he's one of the predominant documentary filmmakers and, and on, on PBS. And it was just something I thought of. I thought oh, that would be a good venue to, to display the film in. Is that still a possibility? I don't know. I sent it to them four months ago or something, three months ago. And I haven't heard back from anybody and I'm sure they get thousands, who knows how many, you know, submissions they get daily or weekly or monthly. So I haven't heard anything from them yet. I'm guessing they have some type of formal way to, I guess on the website, you can go in and make a submission to them. Yeah, I submitted it. I submitted a, a private link with the password on that I have on Vimeo. Okay. And I filled out an application. It was a, it wasn't a very long process, but I think they said they would take up to 90 days to get back to me. They didn't speak to me directly. It was just, you know, everything these days is digital. Right. You don't ever talk to a live person anymore. <laughs> seems like everything's just a text on a screen. So speaking of the release of the movie, it is not officially out yet. Is that correct? Not officially. No, it'll, it'll be out this the 15th, uh, uh, the night of the premiere, I'm releasing it at 9 p.m. on Vimeo. And it's on May 15th, 16th? May of, 15th. May 15th of 2021. Yeah, you can buy it on my website. You can buy it on, on the homepage of my website, but I haven't really published publicized that too much. So let's step back, back into the filmmaking. Um, so you made this during COVID. And COVID doesn't really make appearance in the movie until about halfway through, which I kind of, I kind of liked because it doesn't make it a dominant part of the story. It just becomes mm -hmm. part of the, the overall story of, and so there's a scene where you guys are um, getting the scene ready and 
you have masks on and artists start talking a little bit about how COVID has impacted them. How did COVID impact your making a movie in the middle of all this? It didn't impact it at all. I mean, I literally, the one reason I made it is because of COVID. Um, my wife and I thought of this movie like 14 years ago. When COVID hit, we were just going on with our lives, just like anything else. I mean, I don't know why, we just did. And my wife said, why don't you make that film you've always thought of making? And I just called Logan up and, you know, set a date with him and we drove to Tip and drove to Dayton. I never thought twice about it. And nobody, none of the artists I met seemed to be too concerned. They, they wore masks and stuff off camera, um, but it didn't affect the filming or the production at all in any way, really. And I didn't it, want it, it to be about that either. I didn't want it to be about, I, it could have been, I one time thought, well, maybe I can make a film about how COVID has affected artists because that's that's a huge, it's, it's affected mine. All my gigs were canceled that last summer. It right. destroyed me. I had had no gigs, and a lot of people. It, it affected everyone, but it didn't affect the filming of the documentary at all. As a matter of fact, more people were available because they were all at home, or they weren't going anywhere that summer, so they didn't have <laughs> art fairs and they didn't have music gigs and things like that. So it it really didn't affect it in a bad way. Were there any artists that you did talk to that didn't make the movie? artists you wanted to make you wanted to include but they wouldn't they weren't available yeah there were a whole bunch um originally the film was supposed to be me following three different artists who worked in three different mediums around with a camera crew <clears throat> and one of them was a band there was an excellent band here in cleveland and i ran into some issues with them they wouldn't sign the releases some of the band members were suspicious of the releases and then the band broke up so, and I was just kind of like devastated because they would have been the perfect, like a, a cut away from the fine artist to the band and it would have been great, but they weren't in it. Then I had a couple of people that wanted to be in it, but changed their mind last minute or people that just decided that one young lady thought her artwork would get stolen if it was shown in a film. She was real paranoid and she decided not to be in it. Huh. I'm not certain where she got that idea from, but there's a lot of artists are paranoid about their art artwork being stolen. So yeah, well, it, do, it does happen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've had my photography stolen online anyway. I had a, a friend who had uh, her paintings and a display at the mall and people would walk up and take pictures of the painting on their phone. and <laughs> said, I'll just go, I'll just go home and paint this. Oh no. And they would tell her that, to her face, like, I'm just taking a picture of this so I can go home and paint it so I don't have to pay you for it. Oh, wow. And it's like, that's, those are people who aren't quite getting what it means to support the arts. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's, there's definitely a disconnect there. <laughs> so we talked about the, um, going back to the, the finances of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see that you had a GoFundMe that you started for the movie. Yeah. How did that work and how did you end up funding this? And what type of, for the, the technical people out there, what type of gear are you using for this? Sure. Um, well, GoFundMe really showed my Achilles heel because I'm not really good at marketing myself and I've never figured out GoFundMe or all those crowdfunding websites. So I raised a tiny bit of money off of that. It, it wasn't very successful. It wasn't at all. And I, I still, <laughs> I just don't know how to get people 
I don't know how to drum up the um, the curiosity about my stuff. So that that really kind of fell on its face. What was your other question? Equipment and uh, yeah, what oh, equipment did um, you how use? Did I fund it? Yeah, the fun the funding was just all my wife and I just funded it. It was just out of our own finances. And I guess it's it's what you would call a micro a micro budget film. But we just what had happened is I was supposed to I got accepted to high university for their masters in arts in documentary filmmaking. Right as COVID had hit, but they couldn't tell me. Like I think the university was like, you know, in a tailspin because of COVID, and I couldn't figure. They couldn't tell me what classes I was taking and what what was in the, the schedule, and it was very confusing to me. And I thought maybe I don't want to go to school right now because I was going to have to teach as a graduate assistant. And I said I don't want to teach during this pandemic. So I I told them thank you, but no thanks. I'm not coming to school again. And we decided to take the money we had saved for graduate school and put it into the film. So we had some money saved up for graduate school. That's just how, that's how we funded it. And then um, equipment-wise, uh, my cinematographer had a he had a Sony A6300, which is a, um, I don't know if it's exactly prosumer, but it's a prosumer three-quarter size sensor camera. Um, it's more or less used for um, new filmmakers like myself to make make films. I used my Sony A6500 and I rented a, a, a Nikon D850. I used GoPro and an iPhone. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, at one point when my cinematographer left, I, I kind of had to think fast and figure out how to finish the film. So I had to rent equipment. I had a camera and I used my iPhone for some of it because you can shoot 4K on the iPhones now. And so I, I you can probably tell if you're a professional photographer that there there's a very variation in the quality of the film but i think it ended up working out pretty good well it's a documentary so that falls within acceptability doesn't it that's that's what i thought and and um it's i what i use i use lapel microphones my cinematographer used um i don't know what kind of microphone he had a boom microphone it was i think it was a road a road microphone but it was a real simple setup. We just had one camera, uh, one light, and um, that was it. Then lapel microphones or a boom microphone. It was a real simple one camera shot. And I would I would set up one shot. Well, I had my I had you know like the straight on shot, and then I had an off the side shot with like the iPhone. And in right. post, I would edit between the two. So you are one of the artists that you interview for the movie. Were you on the set by yourself when you interviewed yourself or did you have somebody asking you the questions for you to respond to? Well, yeah, I should probably mention, I forgot to mention his name. Eric McGuinn was my cinematographer and he did a good job. And, and for the first part of the film, he, he was here in my studio and I was sitting here and he was over there with a camera and my wife was interviewing me off camera. Okay. So he had a camera here. And then um, for the second part of it, where I was by myself, I just wore the same shirt and set up a camera and interviewed myself. So I had a microphone and I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's a great question. And you know, it was just kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to doing that because I have a YouTube channel where I'm always talking pretty much to myself into a camera. So I just kind of winged it. Or is it wung it? No, it's winged it. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, 
I think that's how I, I did most of the, the second half of the film was by myself. You touched about on this a little bit earlier in our conversation about because of COVID, your other creative endeavors, the musician and photography, those kind of um, got put on hold or hiatus. So did the filmmaking satisfy your need to be a creative or to create things? Yeah, well, it satisfied a whole different aspect of the creation process because it was a whole new medium. I think the satisfying part, because when you're making a film, it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together because you've got all these people and all these different footages from different dates and you've got to put it all together so it makes sense and presents your message. And so it was kind of very satisfying to create this jigsaw puzzle and then put it all together. So it, it came out looking, you know, sensible and interesting. And so from that standpoint, it was like making a big digital painting because I do painting and I always thought of it as, you know, what do I put here? What do I put there? And my palette was the, you know, all the different footage. So yeah, I think it, I think it, um, it satisfied multiple things because I wanted to get a message out there and I wanted to get um, like kind of a message of hope for the person out there that might have given up on their artwork, that it's, you can go back to it later in life. You don't have to do it when you're 18. You don't have to go to college. So from that standpoint, it was really satisfying to see. I think I got that message out there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You know, we're talking a little bit uh, before the recording uh, that you had, you worked in a regular, a regular non-artist job for mm -hmm. a chunk of your years before you uh, went back to being an artist. And I, had, I have a similar background where I spent 15, 17 years in corporate America and doing um, uh, contracting for the government and all that good stuff yeah. and realized I was not in the right place. That mm -hmm. my, the uh, one thing I told my boss at, at my um, last job was I have lots of ideas. It's your job to figure out which ones are the good ones. <laughs> and when I look around and no one else I worked with had any ideas, no one was being creative. No one had, they weren't thinking about how can we fix this or how can we do that? And I just realized, okay, I'm, I'm not in the right, the right place. Yeah. Um, what was your, what was your waking moment? Um, well, I always felt like I was an artist in corporate clothing. You know, I had the silk tie and the button down shirt and the khakis and I always felt creepy dressing like that. I mean, it sounds so <laughs> weird. I always, I'm, I've always been the, you know, I've always admired the people with the purple hair and the tattoos and the piercings because on the inside, I'm really that person, but I just don't dress it. I look very conservative. And I think the waking moment, I was in a business meeting years ago around the big oak table with, I worked in telecommunications and we were having this meeting and, and while everybody was jawing on about some boring corporate thing, I was doing sketches of people on my, on my yellow legal pad. And a girl next to me, she saw it, she goes, wow, you can draw? And I said, yeah, I guess so. I, she's like, what are you doing here? You should be doing art or something. And for all these years I've been in art, I would sit there and stare at the window, or been in a corporate world. I was staring out the window and thinking, oh, I should go back to school and get my BFA i'm really not where i'm meant to be and when this girl said that to me i thought maybe she's right maybe i should really follow who i really am and stop trying to pretend to 
be this corporate person because I was always the person who had ideas or I would say things I wasn't supposed to say because you're supposed to just step in line. And if, and if the boss says jump, you're supposed to say how high. And I was always like, why, why should I jump? Like, what do you mean? I would always question them. Like, why are we doing it this way? Why don't we try doing it that way? And like, I don't know. Why, why are you asking me this right now? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and I would always get, I, I knew I kind of blackballed myself because I was always going against the grain. I wasn't being a maverick, but I, they could tell I was, I always thought there were better ways to do things. And you're not supposed to th think that way in the corporate world. You're just supposed to do what they tell you to do. That's them. I guess I say it, I don't know if we can swear in here, but there's an expression, he wouldn't say shit if he had a mouthful. And I always picture the corporate world stuffing your mouth full of crap and you're supposed to go poo. You're not supposed to go against the grain. And that's just kind of how it is there, I think. Sorry, corporate people, if you're corporate out there. <laughs> Could you have made this movie if you didn't have the corporate experience behind you? If you had been an artist all these years, could you have made this movie? Hmm. I, I don't think I could have made the movie if I hadn't become an artist, if I hadn't really tried to focus on who I really am. I don't think the corporate world inspired me to make the movie, but I think finding out the struggles of being an artist and a business person helped make the movie. Because, um, you know, I didn't really even think of this until I actually started trying to make money with it, with my art. And I started, started meeting people um, that were artists and I wanted to find the truth. But I don't think there's much creative about the corporate world. They're just out there trying to make money off everybody and exploit the world. But that's a whole nother. <laughs> I think there's some creativity in it. But I think the whole it's a whole psyops thing where they get people to buy stuff they don't really need so you can make more men and women rich. I'm very so anti-corporate. <laughs> so, Rusty, you and I have known each other off and on for the last couple of years. Uh, but I don't know, do you have a corporate or nine to five background in your past, or have you always been an artist? There've been times that um, I've had to work to support myself, but, but uh, even in the really early eighties, I, um, I remember sitting in a, um, in a diner about, I don't know, it was about one o'clock in the morning. And it was a little bit of a hangout on Friday or Saturday night. And I remember telling somebody because I, I worked a second shift, so I would get off at 11. So, so I'd go there for a while before I'd go home. And, and I told somebody one night that this is what I do for a living, but, but my art is really what I do for life. So I've always um, had both tracks in my head, whatever, you know, there's times when you have to work and you have, we have responsibilities and circumstances, but I've never sat down my 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 artist inclinations said i've never i've never been off that road entirely so what skills did you bring in as the associate or assistant or was associate producer is that the title the ap when whatever yeah, what, skills did you, what, what, what skills did you bring into that and where did you develop those skills well um i think it, i think what i brought was um a little familiarity with the community number one and it's my passion to create the community, create the networking, to to bring that connection in. So I think that um, so I think that was my biggest skill. You know, Peter was kind of at a crossroads. He was sharing that with um, Logan and myself, and you know, just like, well, if if that direction's not going to work, as he mentioned, you know, some of the um, some of the artists just weren't working out 
according to his plan. And so, you know, so what, where, where was he going to go? And so in our course of conversation between the three of us, then it came up about the um, artists and commu community in Dayton and, and I'm very familiar with them. And, and um, on, on the inside, and I, and I tried to say it without being intrusive, but I'm like, oh, please do our community, please do our community. And, and I think that's, that's probably um, the first thing that I felt like I could bring because, because they're there. And, and I know them and I've met them and met most of them. And, and I really wanted to see, I really wanted to see and hear, I want to see them and hear their voices because I love the questions that Peter was asking. I felt like it's such an important, it's such an important documentary. And so, um, so I brought that first, I think. And, um, and I, you know, I am kind of good about doing the follow-up and having the, um, you know, talking to the folks and, and I'm also, you know, I think so in, in order to set up the appointments and, and keep all that on schedule and all that. But also I was so excited. The, and the latter part of my responsibilities have been about helping to try to find ways to get the, the documentary seen. So I bring it in my, my creative thinking, you know, well, maybe we can do this and, you know, maybe we can do that. And so I, you know, so, you know, Peter, Peter listens, he's, he's, a, he's a champ about, you know, hearing what I have to say and then selecting what, what some of my craziness will, um, will work for who he is. And so uh, he just allowed me the freedom to, to, to say things, you know, it's, you know, it's his film, it's his, his idea. He's, he's the one invested. He's, he's all of these things, but yet he was willing to, to be open to, um, you know, here's, here's what we decided I could do for him. And he was open to allow me to, you know, have, have ideas and certainly not with the documentary itself, but, you know, just, just part of the process. And so it's been really, really exciting. So I thank him a lot. I think one of the things that Rusty has naturally is that she's a uniter of people, I think, and a great leader of people, especially in the art community. I mean, it's just from what I can see from the outside, um, She's very calming. She has a very calming diplomatic approach to things that I, I can be diplomatic, but I'm kind of rough around the edges and she would just come in and say it differently and get people on board as opposed to my approach. And I think she's got a great skill, diplomatic skills and, and a great eye for, she had a great eye for what was going on. She, she caught on to it right away. And it was just really fascinating to watch how, she, how excited she got about the project and she bought into it right away and how, at ease she brought me in. The minute I met her, she just made me feel very comfortable and, and welcome, which it's, it's very hard to make me feel comfortable. So <laughs> she, and, and she, I think she does that with people. I, I haven't seen her on lots of people, but um, she was just excellent working with me. And, and I, think, I, think, I think any good um, creative person, you know, I've got this, got this sayings. It was said to me a while back, but every balloon needs a string holder. And so I, so I got to be a string holder here. But, you know, Peter's not just sitting back in a chair watching other people do his job. You know, it's, it's, he, he's totally engaged and he's, he's in the zone. And there are things that are occurring around us that it's not his job to have to pay attention to or something subtle going on. And, you know, he's, he's got to be entirely in his creative process with um, and engaging the artists that he's interviewing and, and at the same time watching the filming and all of this. So I think everybody, I, everybody should, you know, have somebody who's got their back in these moments. And that was, 
I think probably that was something that I had going on for us too, you know, that way he could just be comfortable to be totally engaged in, in his mission, you know, in the moment. It is hard when you're in the middle of creating to remember that sometimes you have to be nice to people <laughs> because you're, you're so focused in like, you know, you've got the lighting and you've got yeah. the, the audio and you're trying to, you know, be director and ask the questions and keep things going. And then someone over is asking, you know, well, where are we going for lunch? And you're like, I, yeah. I don't have time yeah. for that. So it is nice yeah. having someone who can remind, who can remain outside a little bit to act as a little bit of a buffer or the, the calming presence. What's um, funny with, with when you're, what I found like Rusty found out about me is I found out one thing I found about myself is I'm a bit of a control freak. <clears throat> and I just, when I first met Rusty, my friend Logan said, you got to meet this person, Rusty. And I'm like, oh, this has cost me money. And I, I don't want to go over this lady's house. And who is this Rusty <laughs> lady? I'm like, oh, no, I'm losing my light. I'm losing my light. And I met Rusty. I'm like, oh, wow, this lady's amazing. And, um, but being a director is kind of like being a painter, but handing somebody else the brushes and the palette and saying, okay, put this color here and put this color there. And it's, it's very like nerve wracking because I, I want to do it. I, so I ended up taking over everything other than what Rusty did. And I had the cinematographer for a while, but I wish I didn't have to give him up because I had to do the sound and the, and the cameras and, and the writing and the editing. And you have to give all that up when you're a director. You don't have to, but it's probably better that you do. It's just so stressful. But Rusty, um, and she met me, she's like, she told me the other day, like, you didn't really want me in this, did you? Or something like that. I don't know what you said. And I was like, no, nah, not really. I didn't really want to give it up to anybody. I was, I'm very, I'm a, I guess I'm a control freak when it comes to my creative stuff. I don't want anybody else messing with it. But she did an excellent job working with me. So you said this was an idea you've had in your brain for 14 years. Mm -hmm. Are you satisfied with it? Did it satisfy the 14-year vision? Yeah. Yeah, I think it did. Well, originally, as I was telling Rusty and I was telling my wife that this was going to be like a negative film about, you know, the, one of the original things is I got sick of people coming up to me at art shows trying to talk me down on my, my art prints, my photograph prints and saying, oh, it's 150, we take 75. And I would get so mad. I wouldn't out, outwardly be angry, but I thought, but this, you know, I was going to tell the world about how it sucks to be an artist because it's, you know, you go through this whole process to make something, then people second guess, number one, how you create it. Then they try to talk you down on your work live in your face at an art show. Oh, I know how you did that. And it was going to be kind of that kind of thing. Like I was going to be, it was going to be about me being the bitter artist. And um, <laughs> it took a different direction. I don't remember, I think Rusty kind of, steered me into a more positive direction because I think she said nobody wants to hear all this negative junk because you're a bitter you know tortured artist and I, even my wife said it she's like who's going to want to watch that <laughs> you whine and complain because you can't sell your artwork and um I think the overall thing yeah I'm I'm really happy with it I think it, it has a really nice positive message um it speaks to a lot of people there's a lot of people I've met that wish they were artists they wish they were like all of us they gave up on it they have a family or to take the corporate turn in their life or whatever they did so i think it, it has a nice positive spin 
for multiple people out in the on the world well for me you achieve the goal that i think a lot of creatives go for which is always leave them wanting more when it was over i wanted more it's like i hope this is not done i hope this becomes like volume one of you (laughs) of you interviewing artists about their job of being an artist because i want to know more i mean i I lived it and i watched the movie and i still want to know more oh nice that's nice well my cousin who who designed the logo for the film said the same thing he's like i want now i want to know more about these different artists yeah and i never thought i I never saw thought saw it that way that's maybe that'll be my next project little mini documentaries about rusty and little one about logan and maybe you and we'll just talk just a little 20 minute documentary about each of you or something well so in, in my mind i'm looking at it um the i forget the person's name that the people of new york city that did the i think it was on was it instagram or facebook you take a picture of somebody on the street and tell their story i think oh. it was a, i think it was a male artist and it just it became a book and every day there's this new one it's like i just want artist that, P- that Peter meets and just kind of <laughs> let you let you just go all over the country, all over the world, talking to artists about being artists. But then find somebody to pay for all that. <laughs> but then it becomes your <laughs> job and, and, you don't, and you no longer could be a photographer or musician. This becomes your job. That's so an excellent that, idea. That's huh, that's a good idea. But, but would that would that scratch your your itch as a as a person who creates? Yeah, are are this to you enough? I'm I'm fascinated with artists. I've I've always been. I remember in college, just like I said, I've always watched the, the more eccentric artists, and I always wonder where they got the courage to dye their hair and do all this stuff. And you know, um, I think it'd be fascinating to document their life and talk about how did you go from this to this? How did you go from working in painting to becoming a sculptor? And there's there's a whole growth process in every artist's life when they go from one medium to another or I think everybody's story is fascinating when it comes to being an artist. Because it's rare that the journalism comes from within. And everything else, all the other stories I've looked at, is somebody who is dipping into the art world, but they aren't part of the art world. So they're, they're looking at it from the outside and kind of poking and, and looking for, like you said in the movie, the, the people wearing berets and, and um, black turtlenecks and smoking the clove cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's what they're looking for when they that's what they think of this as artists. And you're coming in it from inside the world saying, This is I'm interested by these people, and you should be too. Oh yeah, and it's funny because um I thought of that when I was making it. I was like, Can I do this since I'm already in in this culture kind of? But but I can kind of see it from both sides because I've been on the outside looking in as the corporate with the silk tie and the two-toned uh, shirt. But I've also been at the wild parties and I know wild artists and I know conservative and I've seen it from all sides. So I think there's a story to be told because I don't think the general public knows. They just see it from their little tiny myopic point of view because they don't, nobody tells, nobody sits down with the general public and says, do you know what they really do? Do you know how much time they put into a piece of work or I don't know if they would care, but I think there's a what is misconception or a, there's a stereotype out there that, because I think that art artists have touched the hand, 
the hand of an artist has touched everything. The glasses you're wearing, the headphones, the cars we drive, the cereal boxes, but it's all taken for granted. There's whole graphic design teams that put some of the stuff together and it's just taken for granted. And I, I think it's, I don't know if it's time. I don't want to be the Pied Piper for all mm -hmm. artists, but I think a lot of us are misunderstood and overlooked and it's kind of sad in a way. It's an interesting way that the art world is working right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure I understand it. Or how, how do you make it work? Yeah. It's really confusing because, you know, because as I said in the film, like in the old days, you didn't really have to compete with somebody in China or Great Britain with your photography. It was kind of local. But now it's everywhere. You put a picture out there and if you're competing with a million other photographers, if you're suit, you know, if you're all doing, you know, pet photography, there's a million pet photographers probably right here in the state of Ohio. So you, you know, you can get on the phone to your internet, call up Joe, who's in another state over, you know, it's just really weird. And how do you grab the attention of a customer with your pet photography? When in, you're not quite certain what everybody's looking for, somebody wants the picture of their puppy sleeping in a bed of roses or, a, you know, a dog juggling kittens. And like, you know, I don't know, I can't, how do you make that photograph? I mean, you have to, it's all done in post, but how do you compete with all that? And I've never figured that out. Or how do some people get so popular? I've yeah. never understood that part of it. So do you expect to become a known entity because of your filmmaking visit, uh, this becomes something that you're more known for than your photography and your music. Would you be okay oh, with I that? I don't. I don't have any preconceived feelings or hope. You know, I just like doing it. I'm not really hoping to get notoriety. I, I'm not. You know, if it happens, it happens. So you'd be, that's it a, be nice you'd, be, you'd be fine with becoming um, a, a, a filmmaker with photography and musician as subtitles? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been dabbling in the digital world selling stuff. I, I'm an author, I sell books on the internet. I sell my own, I'm a songwriter, I've sold my songs and my photography and now a film. And um, so I've been plucking away at different digital storefronts trying to sell stuff. But the competition is stiff, it's just, it's, it's amazingly stiff and the rule book keeps changing, you know, like Amazon has different, they keep changing it. Like Amazon's no longer accepting uh, documentaries, non-solicited documentaries. So somebody like me, uh -huh. they wouldn't take my film because I'm nobody. But, but a couple of years ago, they took film uh, from independent film artists. Right. So the, so the, the rule book, I don't know if it's called the rule book, but it, the rules keep changing. And without you even knowing it behind the scenes, a big corporation like Amazon will completely change who they accept solicit or slip accept um, submissions from. So that that avenue for me is gone, which is so frustrating because I don't know why they did it. Nobody knows why, but they just stopped taking solicited or unsolicited films. So how are how are you having to learn what you can do with your movie now that you made it? How, what's What's involved with all that and, and getting it seen and getting it out there and 
with all the streaming services and every place and the internet being the internet, yeah. you'd think it'd be easy to get your, it could be easy to get your movie seen, but there's so much noise out there. How do you get its attention? I was looking at an aggregator. I, I submitted the film to an aggregator called filmhub.com and they had a real strenuous, uh, what do you call it, screening process where the film had to meet certain specs visually and with the audio and, and all these, all the releases had to be signed. And I passed their entire rigorous screening process. And now the film is just sitting there in queue. It's not gone anywhere, it's not been accepted by anybody. But what they do is they take it and they kind of shotgun it out to all these other digital platforms that they work with like Amazon Prime and is it called Tubi, I think? There's a whole bunch of different yeah. places where you yeah. can go and download a film. That was one avenue, but it's a whole, been a whole learning process. At first, you know, I thought it would be PBS. I didn't hear back from them, so I went to um, Film Hub. I got accepted there, but the films are sitting there in queue. So now I'm thinking if I don't get anywhere at Film Hub, then I'll just, you know, I'll sell it on my website and get it on Vimeo and sell it on Vimeo. And then I'll have to just market it myself. As a musician, there's another, uh, there's an aggregator I go through for my music called CD Baby. And you send your music to CD Baby and they, they shoot it out to Amazon and they send it to iTunes or Apple Music, whatever they call it now. And then it just sits there on their platform. But unless you promote yourself, the general public doesn't know you're there. So either way, whether it's, you know, an aggregator or I do it by myself in Vimeo, somebody's got to promote them promote the crap out of the movie for anybody to ever see it. So you got to find you, out where these people are. Are you looking into the film festivals and having it uh, screened in some film festivals? Yeah, I, I submitted it to the Austin, Austin, Texas Film Festival and three or four others. I can't remember the other ones off the top of my head, but Austin was one of them. And I've, I've been working with a, a company online. I think it's called Film Fest. I think they're called where they have access, they give you a list of all the, the film festivals. A lot of them, I missed a deadline already for this year, but I'll hopefully get it in something for 2022. Because it definitely, it seems like it would be a, a definite target for some film festivals uh, because of the subject matter that you're, you're touching on with being an artist. Oh, good. Of course, there's so many film festivals out there anymore, then how do you know how do you get to, how do you get on those radars? It's like you said you did art fairs. Um, yeah, I looked at art fairs at one point in time. It's like I don't want to do this. I I don't have it in me to be chasing that that type of work. Well, the and art I fairs are a lot of work. Yeah, and I can't imagine film festivals are any better. Yeah, I, I don't. I tried a, a couple here in Ohio. There's the Athens Film Festival the Cleveland International Film Festival, but I missed both the deadlines for them. Yeah, the art fairs when I'm selling my prints, you know, it's it's a lot of work, at least for me it was. Have you done art fairs, Rusty? No. <laughs> Is that by design or it just have, you haven't had to go that route? Um, I, I, um, I, it was by design. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that I said I'm not going to, but as I faced them, I was just like, I didn't have it in me to do it. I, my, my work is um, so personal anyway, you know, I'm, I, I take commissions. I like doing commissions because it relates to people. And a lot of my work has stories. So I'd not, I don't produce a lot. 
I, what I produce is powerful, but I'm not, I don't just, I just don't make a ton. So what am I going to do when I get there? And I have, you know, have these and like, Oh, listen to my story. So I just didn't feel like it was a fit for me. So um, I decided not to pursue it really pretty early on. I was looking over, over my notes when I watched the movie. And one of those was your quote where you, where you said, sell your story. That was your, yes. your big advice uh, to Peter was sell your story. Peter, did you sell your story with this movie? Sell my story? Or, or, yeah, yeah the story I think that, I did. Of me as an artist? Or just the story you wanted to tell with it? Did you did you sell it? I don't know. I didn't know. I, I, did, I told it, but I don't know if I sold it. <laughs> I mean, I I'm buying told, it. I, what's that? <laughs> I'm buying it. You must have <laughs> sold it. I bought it. <laughs> I bought yeah, it. I think, I think I got a, a good portion of myself in there. Tim, did, Tim you buying his story? I am. Yeah, oh, good. yeah, that's why we're here. We're buying your story, Peter. Yeah. It's, it's hard for me to watch the film through your eyes because, like, I can, when I watch, I'm like, oh, I could have done this differently. I'm looking at it from a creative point of view. Like, you know, I'm looking, listening to the sound and watching the lighting. I'm not looking at the story sometimes. So it's hard for me to. That is tough. I, I, I guess I did. Yeah. I didn't, no. I didn't want to be, a, be like really self absorbed about me. I'm very self conscious about being all about pete i wanted it to be about rusty and logan and all the other people but i i had to put myself in there a little bit it's one thing i don't think people really understand about artists is that by the time you by the time they see it on the wall we're tired of looking at it oh yeah it's like all um, the people i mean i love all the people that were in the film but i'm so tired of looking at everybody's face and hearing their voices because i've seen <laughs> them over and over and over again it's like, oh no not another I can't stand another, you know, five minutes with this person. Not that I don't like them or they're not attractive. It's just you've seen them about, crazy. Yeah. And you've heard the same the same conversation from them yeah. hundreds of times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah one of my favorite quotes was um, there's the a documentary on the making of Pink Floyd's uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Uh -huh. And uh, David Gilmore, who's the guitarist, said, one of his big regrets in life is he will, he will never have the opportunity to listen to it for the first time. Yes. Yeah. Because he was, they were, they were in it and mixing it and mixing it and remaking it and editing and recording. They never oh, have, yeah. never have the experience of listening to it for the first time. Oh, it's true. Cause like, even when I, I work on songs and I do like the initial, initial song, and I think the acoustic, just the acoustic guitar and vocal sounds great. It loses the magic as you start working on it and you had drums and bass and piano. I was like, oh, I'm so tired of this song. And when you finally finish with it, you just don't want to hear it again. And it's, it's so hard to, it's just so hard to appreciate it. So yeah, I, yeah, I get what you're saying. Having watched the movie for the first time, for the first time, I, you, I, I, you sold me the story. I, I enjoyed really? it a lot and yeah, so. Oh, awesome. We well, just but, made my whole, my whole year. <laughs> thank you i mean i i didn't know like you're an artist and rusty's an artist i i've i have yet to show well i showed it to my in-laws they're not artists and they liked it um which is a huge um achievement because they're not really into the arts so I, i'm wondering what the average everyday person will think of it getting to the point of wrapping this up this is how can I, i'm sold rusty's sold how can other people watch this movie 
um, either as artists or non-artists to see what the life of an artist is? How can people get a hold of this? Um, they can go to my website right now. If they go to www.theartistadocumentary.com, um, the homepage, it'll take you right to um, a screenshot of the film and you can click on the little dollar sign and you can rent it. I think I'm running it for $2.99 or you can download it and buy it for $9.99. That's right now it's live. Or uh, if you want to wait until this Saturday, the 15th of May at 9 p.m., I'll be selling it on Vimeo. And if you want, I, don't, I can send you the link to that. I don't know the link off the top of my head because it's like, I don't know what, it, I can send it to you. Yeah, and I can put that. In the, I sure. can put that in the show notes, and I'll put your uh, the website in the show notes as well for it. Okay. Yeah, right now those are the two places it's going to be for sale. Are you, are you selling hats and t-shirts and stickers <laughs> and buttons? <laughs> no, I, I thought of it, but I after I was done with this whole thing, I was so tired. I I just like I just didn't have the energy to do it. I don't know. Maybe I'll do something down the road. I first want to see if it got any traction on the internet. I don't know if that's backwards thinking. I probably should have that stuff ahead of time to promote the movie, but I haven't done anything like that yet. There's nothing better than a garage full of t-shirts that no one's bought. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got lots of those. <laughs> so how can people find your photography and your music? Oh, that's true. Um, let me think. I'm trying, it's been so long since I thought about that stuff. Um, they go to Skating Bear skatingbearstudios.com you can um, see my photography from there and uh, there's a link to where to buy some of my prints I've also got stock photography and video on Pond5 that's the primary one where I sell my stock photography I think that's it right now yeah I'm, I'm social on, like DeviantArt and a few other places but I, I pr pretty much promote um just to read for my website is where you can buy the prints. Do you have any social media? Are you on Instagram, Facebook? What are the, what are the, how, can people, um, how, how can people find you on those? Yeah, I'm on Facebook as Skating Bear Studios. I'm on Instagram as theartistadocumentary.com. And I'm on Twitter as theartistadocumentary.com. That's all I is, right is it artist singular or artist plural when people singular. are looking it up? Okay. Yeah, it's singular. And Rusty Hawk, can people find your stuff? I have rustyharden.com and then um, Facebook, Rusty Harden. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a few other places, but I really engage my Facebook page. Really do. That's that's where I interact with most most of the folks. So we just go visit there. Any other words of wisdom from either of you that you want to pass on to folks about the movie or about being the life of an artist? Well, don't give up in your dream. If you've, you've given up it at one point, there's always a chance you can st still work at it. And then, and you don't have, you don't have to be in a vacuum, you know, get out there and find your tribe. If you don't can't find your tribe, create a network, you know, you we're stronger when we're, when we're seen together. Yeah, that's true. Great words. I probably cannot articulate enough um, how meaningful the, and the experience to listen to all of the, I didn't, I didn't absolutely sit in on every interview, but I sat in probably two thirds of them and the things that are, that are on the cutting floor, as they say, 
there's so many gems there, you know, so many gems. And and everybody has a story. I think that's what's so neat about being an artist is that everybody I met wanted to talk. And and I felt bad for the people that declined their opportunity to be in this film because they've got a story they got to tell. And there's so many people I met in Dayton just they they wanted to talk. They didn't hold back. And I think each of us we're different. Artists are different people, but we have a huge story to tell. And it's all interesting. I think it is. I mean, I might be biased, but you, me, Rusty, Logan, everybody, just there's a story behind their work, behind their inspirations, behind their dreams, behind setbacks. Um, I used to listen. I'm a huge Beatles fan. And when you listen to, you know, John Lennon talk about his childhood and kind of what made the man into the artist is fascinating. It's more fascinating than music to hear the heartache and the and the pain and stuff it's like wow all that and when you you know i've always been fascinated with like van gogh's story or i'm just learning about hopper or i just saw a documentary about um oh geez ken burns documentary about um that author um that author hemingway hemingway (laughs) (laughs) you know that guy (laughs) that guy that, that author he it was a fascinating story i had no idea this man was so tortured and just it was a fascinating story just to hear the behind the scenes stuff is what I think is cool. Yeah, I've always enjoyed um, the artist journals and their sketchbooks more than yeah. the, work they have on, the work they hang on the wall. Oh, yeah. There's, there's sketches I've seen Edward Hopper have done where he's he just painstaking processes leading up to his final painting of there's little notes and sketches and works with the different models and it's like well i had no idea i just assumed when i was younger that they just walked in the studio and painted a masterpiece and walked out same with the beatles i thought they just walked in the studio and made abbey road and that was it no there was (laughs) weeks and weeks and weeks of work and recording and dubbing and that part is interesting i've got a book on on their recording um the beatles recording sessions with lays out every track and how they laid the bass and the drums and all that stuff Yeah, the, the creative process is amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you, folks. Yeah. Um, and um, good luck with the movie. And Thanks. We will, I'll get this out there and uh, let people start listening to it. Then they can start watching your movie. Excellent. Tim, thank awesome. you for thank you for including me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs>